The scripture reading for today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 9 through 31. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 599. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and they are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains." He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out the host by number, calling them all by name? By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is discarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint." Would you pray with me? God, our prayer this morning is that prayer that Moses prayed when he was on 
the mountain with you, and he said, show me your glory, show me your glory. And you did that for him. You revealed yourself to him. You spoke to him. You told him who you were. And we're asking that you would do that same thing for us this morning. Show us your glory and do it by your word. Help me and help your people as they hear. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of of confidently using a word, perhaps even repeatedly, only to find out that you were using the word incorrectly. Several months ago, after preaching a sermon right here in this pulpit, one of the other pastors here kindly pointed out to me that I was using a word incorrectly. The way I used it showed that I thought the word meant one thing, but it actually carries quite another meaning. And to my embarrassment, I realized not only had I used the word incorrectly, but I'd been doing it for years. I'm guessing you've had that experience, or you've been around someone who's, who's having that experience, and you want to quote to them that great quote, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. That's a, a quote from the Princess Bride. Perhaps you've wanted to say that or have had that said to you. Now, that doesn't just happen to individuals. It also happens to churches. There are words or phrases, even perfectly good biblical words or phrases that through overuse and familiarity can have their meaning obscured. Worship is one of those words. And it only gets more confusing because it gets attached to all kinds of other words. There's worship music, there's worship leaders, there's worship bands and worship services and worship resources. Some churches even have worship centers. There seems to be nothing more obvious than that the church should be about the business of worship. But do we know what we're talking about? Do you know what we're talking about? What does it mean for the church to worship? And who is the God that the church worships? And if it is, it is something that we're commanded to do, if it's something we're commanded to do, how can you grow in it? That's what we want to consider together this morning. So if you have a bulletin, I invite you to take the bulletin outline, the the sermon outline that you'll find there. I think it'll be helpful to you in following uh, through this sermon as we look at the what of worship, the who of worship, and the how of worship. So first, what is worship? What are we even talking about? Well, first, worship is not just a church thing, right? All people not just Christians, worship. So generally considered, worship is delighted devotion in response to a glorious object. Let me break that down. It is delighted devotion to a glorious object. It begins with an object, a someone or a something, and that person, that object appears to you to be glorious, to be compelling, to be beautiful, to be satisfying. And so you give to that object your devotion. You serve and praise and adore and protect and proclaim that object. And you don't do it cringingly, but delightedly, wholeheartedly, enthusiastically, because the object is, to you at least, glorious. This is the heart of all kinds of worship, and human beings are worshipers in every culture, in every place, at every time. Look around. 
and you will see humanity giving its delighted devotion to all kinds of things they perceive to be glorious, their families, their wealth, themselves. But now what is the church's worship? The church's worship is delighted devotion to the all-glorious God. The church has as her object the true and living God who has made himself known in Jesus Christ. And as we shall explore in, in just a moment, he does not just seem glorious to us, he is glorious, beautiful, compelling, the fountain of every good and perfect thing. And so the church, with delight, with happy, wholehearted enthusiasm, gives itself in devotion to this God, in love and adoration and praise and fear and wonder and service. So that's what, that's what worship is. That's its meaning, delighted devotion to the all-glorious God. And worship evidences itself in two spheres, in the individual lives of believers and in the corporate gathering of the church, what we're doing right here, right now. So individual believers, individual Christians, members of the church, live lives of devotion to this all-glorious God. All of our lives, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, are meant to be presented to God as living sacrifices. All of it is meant to be worship. And Hebrews chapter 13 helps us to see how this looks practically. So let's turn to Hebrews 13. We're going to come back to this later, so let's look at it now. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13 and look at verses 15 and 16. Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. It says this, Through Him, that is through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good, and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So if we're supposed to live our whole lives as living sacrifices of worship to God, what does that look like? Hebrews 13 says, the sacrifice of praise, giving thanks to God, the fruit of our lips, and also the sacrifices of doing good, the sacrifices of sharing with brothers and sisters. So individual worship, worship in our lives consists of grateful praise and loving service so that all of our lives, all of our lives can be lived to the glory of God. And the weekly culmination of those individual lives of worship is the weekly gathering. The church together is the temple of God, the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, so God in the church, he gathers us together to do the things that we see modeled in places like Acts 2, 42 to 47, and 1 Corinthians 14. We hear from God's word, we respond to him by singing to him and to one another, we obey his word, we practice his ordinances, we pray to him. All of those are expressions of our delighted devotion together to God. Now, before we move on from the what of worship to the who, which is where we're going to spend the vast majority of our time, I just want to make explicit something you might be thinking. Worship is not synonymous with music. Worship is not synonymous 
with singing. I highlight this because in our day-to-day conversations in American churches, worship often gets used interchangeably with music or with singing. We'll say, we had a time of worship, followed by a time of prayer, and then a time of preaching, or I was listening to worship on the radio. And maybe we haven't helped that perception by having the associate pastor for music up here preaching the sermon on worship. (laughs) Now, of course, the delighted devotion of the church does express itself in singing, But as I've already pointed out, it also finds expression in lots of other ways in your life as you serve one another, as you give praise to God in your life, as we together participate in the ordinances and hear the preaching of the Word. All of that is an expression of our delighted devotion to God. In fact, we try to communicate this very fact by the way we lay out our order of service. Have you ever noticed, if you take your bulletin and you just look at it, Some of you don't believe me, but if you look at the order of worship right there, we didn't just do this for today. It says, welcome and call to worship, worship through singing, worship through sharing and prayer, worship through the Word, worship through communion, and the hymn of response, of course, is back to worship through singing. All all of that is worship, everything we're doing in this service. Now, my point here is not to police the way you talk, I'm not going to jump on you if I hear you were using worship in the wrong way, but I do want you to be clear in your minds that worship is a much larger thing than singing. It includes all the elements of our gathering here as the culmination of a whole life devoted to God. And my hope for this sermon is that it causes you to walk away with a deeper, more delighted devotion to our God. That's actually the big application point for this sermon. You don't have to wait till the end to find out what's the application, what should I do with this sermon. I'm hoping this sermon helps to to deepen and widen our wholehearted delight in God so that our lives scattered throughout Vermont and our life together, gathered here, will evidence greater devotion to Him. But if that's going to happen... It's essential we consider more than just the what of worship. We must consider the who. Your worship will not increase by talking about your delight, but in seeing and savoring its object, namely the all-glorious God. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this God. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to do it in two steps. Those two steps come to us from Hebrews chapter 1. Listen, just listen as I read from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. These verses tell us how our all-glorious God has revealed Himself to us. Previously, for a long time and in many different ways, God made Himself known through the prophets. But now at the end of the ages, He has spoken in His Son. So that's the pattern we're going to follow. How did God reveal Himself in the prophetic word of the Old Testament? And then, how did God reveal Himself in the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ? So let's go back to the very beginning of that prophetic word God has given us. Turn back in your Bible to the very beginning to Genesis chapter 1. And look with me at verse 1.
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We want to start just by considering the glory contained in those first four words. In the beginning, God. So the first thing we must see about the glory of this God who's revealed Himself to us is the glory of His self-existence. He is. He exists. He was before all else was in a timeless eternity of self-sufficient. Let's see, God was there. Moses says it this way in Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting past to everlasting future, God is God. And he was not wringing his hands with boredom or loneliness or exhaustion in his everlasting existence. He has no needs. We heard this earlier from Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. Psalm 121 verse 4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. There's no tiredness in God. He has no needs. He enjoys perfect blessedness, perfect happiness in himself. And in this way, God is totally different from everything else you and I know. Every person, everything you know needs something else for it to exist, right? Nothing exists of its own accord. Nothing can get along without something else. And, and nowhere is that more evident than when you look at your own life, right? You try going without food for, for a week or two, see how you get on. You try going a few days without water. Think about how much time you spent in the last 24 hours sleeping. Now, I'm sure you'd say, it could have been more. But that's kind of the point, isn't it? It could always be more because you need it. Not so for our God. In the beginning, He was and He is. That is the glory of His self-existence. And He is glorious in creative power. That's what we see in Genesis 1. If you're still there, look. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So God speaks, and the first rays of light flash out across the darkened deep. And if we read on through the next six days, you will see this pattern repeated over and over and over. Out of nothing and from nothing, God speaks and a whole universe is instantly constructed. All the dizzying variety and complexity we know in our created world is hammered out in a moment by this craftsman who works by his word. And again, we're, we're like his self-existence, we're grappling for words to even describe that kind of power. Everything that we make, everything you and I make, is out of something, right? Whether it's an architect building skyscrapers out of steel and concrete or a little child making dolls out of paper and glue, we cannot grasp making something out of nothing. But our God has power to do so. 
and by his power he sustains the world. It is because of the greatness of his might, he said in Isaiah 40, that not one of the stars is missing. And he is the one, Psalm 104 tells us, who makes the springs gush forth to provide drink for all the creatures of the earth. He causes the grass and the plants to grow so there is food. He appoints the time for sun and moon. God created and he sustains all of it. That's the glory of his creative power. And he is glorious in holiness. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah, to the familiar scene in Isaiah chapter 6. If you're looking for Isaiah, if you just open your Bible basically to the middle, you'll find the book of Isaiah. If you're in Psalms, keep turning right. Isaiah chapter 6. Our God is glorious in holiness. Let's read the first five verses of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah, that was the king of Judah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God's holiness is his majestic purity. And you see it here both proclaimed three times by the angels, and it's pictured in the way the story lays out. Isaiah sees God as this majestic king, high, lifted up with a kingly robe so long and glorious that it would flow down from this platform and fill up the whole room, a huge train of his robe. And he is so radiant in his majesty that even the angels who serve him day and night cover their faces and their feet before him. But His holiness is more than just this transcendence, more than just His exalted status. It is His majestic purity, and we see this in Isaiah's response. He does not say, woe is me, for I am a man of lowly estate. No, he says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. His sin is the problem because God's holiness is His majestic purity. He is utterly distinct from His creation and in His awesome moral excellence. This is how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 99. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. The holy God loves justice. He loves righteousness. He loves equity because He is glorious in holiness. He only does what is right. He never does what is evil, nor has ever evil ever touched Him or marred Him. That's the glory of His holiness. And He's glorious in wisdom. Here I'm referring to both what God knows, namely everything, and His use of that knowledge for His good plan. God knows all things. As the maker of all things, nothing is outside His knowledge. Nothing escapes His sight. He made it all. 
His understanding, Isaiah 40 says, is unsearchable. All that has happened, all that will happen, belongs to the mind of God. He knows His creation. He calls the stars by name. And He knows humanity as well. Not merely where they are and what they've done, but He knows the thoughts and the intentions of their hearts. And He is gloriously wise in that knowledge, applied in His perfect plan that brings Him glory. He keeps His own glorious counsel and works everything together for His good. Because He is the self-existent God, without need, infinite in power, majestic in holiness, He didn't need feedback in creating His plan. There was no focus group in the halls of heaven. We read, who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows Him counsel? The answer, in case you were wondering, is no one. No one shows Him counsel. The nations, it says, with all their libraries and knowledge and sophistication are like a drop in a bucket. The Library of Congress, Google, all the research capabilities of artificial intelligence, they're like dust on the scales. Do you see that image? Dust on the scales is so insignificant You don't even bother to blow it off or wipe it off because it's not going to affect the weight. It's dust. So too with all the knowledge of our information age. It's not even worth comparing to the incomparable weight of God's wisdom. It's nothing compared to Him. And He is glorious in steadfast love. This next facet of God's perfections should come as a balm to you. Because all these other attributes, untethered in any way from His steadfast love, is not good news for humanity. Why? Because our story, the story of humanity, is not of a people who have bowed down and worshipped to this God of glory, no. Beginning with Adam, who exchanged God's glory for his own, All humanity has failed to be devoted to this God. Instead, we've worshipped and served the creature. We've worshipped and served ourselves. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the story of humanity, and that's the story of your life. That's the story of your life. You have continued this rebellion. You've, You've not given yourself in unceasing worship to the one who is worthy of it. And so, What do we have to do with a God who is blessedly self-existent, all-powerful, all-holy, all-wise? But this God is also glorious in steadfast love, and this is good news. What does it mean? It means that He gives of His infinite perfection and blessedness. He gives of Himself to His creatures. He enters into relationship with His people. He promises to do good to those who trust in Him. He pledges mercy, grace, patience, and forgiveness of sin to those who hope in Him. Listen to how He revealed Himself to His covenant people in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. His love is not meager, He says He is abounding in steadfast, promise-keeping love. He delights in it. Listen to how Micah says it in chapter 7. 
Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Do you hear that? That God who has all power and all wisdom delights in steadfast love. It's no chore for Him. And what does His love do? It takes the sins of those who trust in Him and it casts them into the sea. This is our God. He is glorious in steadfast love. And as glorious as that vision of God is, brothers and sisters, we still have not seen His glory as we ought. We cannot be content with God's revelation of Himself that He gave by the prophets. We must press on and see Him as He has revealed Himself in His Son, Jesus Christ. And why is that? It's because the Son is the radiance of God's glory. That is, God's glory made manifest to us. He is the image of the invisible God, God's very word of Himself to us. And so to see God's glory as God wants you to see it with the clarity and the fullness that He intends for you to see it means gazing at His glory known in His Son, Jesus. So let's do that. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Let's read the first four verses. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So first we see now the glory of Christ's self-existence. Jesus, we read, is the Word who was with God and who was God. He was in that everlasting beginning, before beginning, that we read in Genesis 1.1. He existed eternally as God's self-revelation, the Word. And now we see in the light of the sun, we see how it is that God could exist eternally without need because God is not merely self-existent, but existing eternally as three persons relating perfectly to one another, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus reveals himself as the word of the Father, eternally begotten of the Father. He is the one who with the Father sends the Holy Spirit This Godhead, seen in the glory of the Son, has no needs. And yet here is another wonder. The Son, who is self-existent, took on the needs and the bounds and the limits of our human nature. Though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of of a servant being born in the likeness of men, the one, the keeper of Israel who neither slumbers nor sleeps, now, as a human child, sleeps in his mother's arms. So the glory of Christ's self-existence was revealed even as he became man, born of woman at a certain time and place in history. 
And we see the glory of Christ's creative power here in John 1. John tells us concerning Jesus that the Word made, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. By Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, under the earth, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. And so now you see that it was through Jesus that God stretched out the heavens. It was through Jesus that He delved out the oceans. And He is also the one who powerfully sustains creation. He upholds the universe by the word of His power, Hebrews 1 says. Our Lord Jesus Christ is doing that. He's doing that right now. The sun keeps both massive planets and tiny molecules in their perfect orbits. And he put that power on full display when he walked the earth, did he not? He changed water to wine. He calmed the sea. He multiplied bread and fish. He, the Word, controlled all of creation by his Word. He did this so that we might see this one is the radiance of God's glory. And Christ is glorious in holiness. Jesus is holy, holy, holy. He possesses majestic purity. That's why Peter reacted the way he did to Jesus' power in Luke 5. Do you remember that fishing story? When Jesus tells Peter where to fish, he finds a miraculous amount of fish, and Peter responds by falling on his knees at Jesus' knees and saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He wasn't in the divine throne room. There weren't angels surrounding him, but it's the exact same reaction Peter has to Jesus as Isaiah has to the Lord on the throne. Why? because he saw that he was in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. And Jesus coming to earth, he was majestic in holiness, but he also came to vindicate the holiness of God. The centuries-old paradox of God's perfections is resolved here. How can it be that the Holy One of Israel pledges to forgive the sins of his people? How can the one whose throne is righteousness and justice, how can that one give pardon to rebels? And the answer is Jesus. The self-existent Son took on flesh that He might bleed and die on the cross. The all-powerful Son opened not His mouth as He was accused. The Holy One became sin so that He might endure wrath. For our sake, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So in His suffering on the cross, Jesus pays the sin debt of His people. The holy God, through His holy Son, makes a way for God to be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's no wonder then that this Son who reveals all this to us is called the wisdom of God. Jesus is glorious in wisdom. Oh, He was wise in his dealings with those who tried to catch him in a trap with his words, he answered them so well, they said, you know what, let's not dare to ask him anything else. And he was supremely knowledgeable. He knew what was in every man. But more than that, in him, God's plan for all history is revealed. He shows how this all-glorious God has ordered all things so that He might have fellowship with sinful man. He reveals how the bloody suffering of the Jewish Messiah can actually be wisdom and power and righteousness from God, for in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. He is glorious in wisdom. And of course, 
we must not neglect to see the glory of his steadfast love. All that Jesus did, he did in love for his people. He took on flesh. He demonstrated his power. He vindicated God's holiness and wisdom in death and resurrection. All this was in love, the scripture tells us. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The Lord Jesus Christ loves you, church. His death is meant to make that clear to the universe. And not only His love, but to reveal the triune love of God. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And because Jesus has died to remove sin and wrath and has been raised to defeat death and gone up to intercede, nothing can now separate us from God's love for His people. That's what Paul says, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, our Lord Jesus is glorious in steadfast love. Behold your God. Is He not glorious? Is He not delightful? Is He not altogether lovely in His self-existence, His power, His holiness, His wisdom, His love? And that's not all that He is. There's more that could be said. There's, there's far more. We, we haven't even touched on all of His perfections. And we haven't begun to speak about all His ways and His works. I don't have the, the time, the words, the powers necessary to unfold for you all the glories of our God. And this will always be true. We will spend thousands of endless ages gazing at the unfolding glories of our God and His Son, and we shall never tire of gazing, and He shall never lack more to reveal. This is our God. And I know some of you don't see Him as glorious. You don't, you don't see Him as beautiful. And I want to tell you that, that the problem for you is one of profound blindness. The Bible tells us that God is all-glorious, and it also tells us that humanity, apart from God's intervention, is blinded from seeing the light of His glory. You have no taste for His glory. You have ears that are shut to His beauty. And you are not passive in this process. It's not like you're a helpless victim of outside forces. No, the Bible says that you have preferred other things to God. You've served yourself rather than Him. You've, you've gladly taken His gifts, but you've ignored the giver of the gifts. That's sin. That's rebellion. That leads to hell, to, to be cut off from God forever in eternal torment. But the Bible also tells us that God is able to forgive your sins and to heal your blindness. He can give you eyes to see His glory in His Son. So, so if you're sitting here and you don't see God as glorious, would you pray and would you ask Him to shine His light into the darkness of your heart? He can do that. Remember how He spoke darkness 
spoke light into the darkness at the beginning of creation. He can do that for you. Ask Him. Ask Him to show you your sins and then to reveal His glory to you. He can do it even now. Ask Him. Ask Him. Now, brothers and sisters, I've, I've already told you that my aim in this sermon has been mainly to deepen your devotion to God by seeing Him more clearly. And I hope that's happened. But how else can you grow? How else can you grow in worship, in your delighted devotion to God? Two ideas. One, by ordering all your life around your devotion to God. And two, by gathering with the saints and engaging with all your might. So first, by ordering all of your life individually around your devotion to God. Or said differently, by orienting the many devotions of your life under your ultimate devotion to God. What do I mean by that? I mean that our lives are filled with commitments to and loves for all kinds of things, right? The vast majority of which are not evil in and of themselves. We are devoted to our spouses and to our workplaces and our education and our children and our parents, and our activities, and our friends. You love food, and pets, and sports, and vacations, and hobbies, and all these things are good things. They're gifts from God. But the problem comes when any of these things shifts from being a gift to being God. The problem is when it moves from being a means of devotion to God to being the center of your devotion. So, for example, your family is a wonderful gift from God, a delightful gift from God. Your parents, your spouse, children, if you have them, they are meant to be delighted in as gifts from God, but they must not be delighted in as God. They cannot be moved to the center of your devotion. You cannot let the approval of your parents be a controlling goal of your life. You cannot let the adoration and well-being of your children or your grandchildren be your life's aim. They cannot be the first line on the budget, the first blocks of time on your calendar, the first thought in your mind when you rise, and the last thought when you lay your head on your pillow. We have a word for that, for worshiping something above God. It's idolatry. It dishonors God by exchanging His glory for a creature. And and the irony is that making the family the center of your life will not actually give you a better family. It will ruin your family because it cannot bear the weight that God alone was meant to bear. So I think the analogy of a solar system is helpful, right? Our solar system has at its center a massive sun. And that sun, by virtue of its tremendous gravitational pull, holds all the other planets in beautiful, symmetric orbit all around it. Perfect harmony with the sun at the center. But if the sun were replaced with Neptune, we would have a real problem. Everything would fall out of orbit, and it would destroy Neptune, and it would destroy our whole solar system. Same for your life, Christian. Families and every other good thing in your life was made to further your devotion to the all-glorious God, not to be the center of your devotion. It has to be fit under the umbrella of devotion to Him. So you say, great, that's, I believe that. How do I do that? If you recognize that there's something in your life that's vying for center, What do you do? Let me recommend two strategies briefly. First, you remember back to Hebrews 13. We read at the very beginning of our time 
that our individual lives of worship include sacrifice of praise to God's name. That's the first thing that we learned in, in Hebrews 13 about individual worship. It involves the fruit of our lips, giving praise to His name. And Romans 1 tells us that the fundamental problem with idolatry is that it fails to acknowledge and give glory to God, to give thanks to Him. So you want to first fight the tendency towards idolatry by giving thanks to God for the thing you're tempted to make the center. You want to give thanks to God to acknowledge it comes from Him and He's over it. So back to the family. When you, when you pick up your little baby or your little niece or your grandchild who just delights and thrills your soul, turn that in praise to God. Delight in the gift and follow it all the way back to the giver. Give thanks to Him. Praise Him for whatever it is in your life that is tending towards the center because in doing so, you acknowledge it is not the center. God is the center. Second, you'll recall that in Hebrews 13, we're also told our sacrificial worship must consist of doing good and sharing what we have. So you fight counterfeit devotion by making the very areas of temptation a means of service. You put those areas to work. We heard that in our share time today with two brothers who are using sports, not as an end in themselves, but as a means of service. You can do that with, for instance, your job or your career. We often make our work, our successes at work, an idol rather than receive it as a gift. But to order it rightly, we must turn away from seeing it as a way of promoting ourselves and instead use, view it as a way of sacrificially doing good. So you labor so that you might have more income to share for the advance of the gospel and the needs of your brothers and sisters. And you labor with integrity and intentionality so that you can make Christ known to your coworkers. Do you see what you're doing there? You're, you're taking your work and you're setting it in orbit around your great devotion to God in Christ. Work is not my God. God is my God. The God who's made himself known in Jesus. So I'm going to make my work serve him. So that's the first way you grow in worship. You order your individual life around your devotion to God. And second, last way that I'm suggesting you can grow in worship is by gathering with the saints and engaging with all your might. As I mentioned earlier, God designed for your life of worship to culminate every week with a gathering of fellow worshipers. This is so essential because the world in which you and I live day in and day out. It doesn't merely have small thoughts of God. It has no thoughts of God. The cultural air that we breathe, the, the, the sea that we swim in, is utterly devoid of God and His glorious Son. But one day a week, for a few precious hours, we come together and we say, God is the all-satisfying center of the universe. God is. And I want you to see that these weekly gatherings that we have here are designed for us to collectively see and savor God's glory. That's what they're for. We hear God's word read to us. That's how our service usually begins, right? With a call to worship. What's going on there? It's an invitation from God himself. It, it usually has in it some aspect of God's person or his work. So right away, we're confronted with our all-glorious all God who bids us to come through him 
in his son and to enjoy him. And we respond by listening and happily answering that call. We sing together. And there's so much going on when we're singing together. That's another message. But we, we are responding to God's glory by saying back to him what he has told us about himself. And at the same time, we're declaring that truth to one another. We are expressing our devotion to God and we are declaring the glory of God to one another. Singing to God, singing to one another, God is both seen and delighted in as we sing. And we share with one another. We tell what God has done or what we are asking God to do. We see God's glory manifested in the lives of fellow saints and we respond in sacrificial devotion by building one another up. We share one another's burdens. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We pray together. You may have noticed we pray a lot in our services. I don't even know how many times, four times, five times, we have set times of prayer in our service. Because as we see God's glory through His Word, read and sung and shared, we are reminded of our neediness. So we offer prayers of praise and confession and intercession, asking God to go on being merciful to us in His Son, to give us everything we need. We hear the Word preached. This is the highlight of our time together. Here Christ Himself speaks to us and feeds us from His Word. Our glorious Savior is held forth. He's held forth to us in all His glory from the Bible. And we partake of the ordinances together. Christ has given us tangible signs to be seen and held to remind us the glory of His person and work. In the table, we taste and see His glory and we receive Him by faith. And in baptism, we see signified for us all the glorious benefits from our union with our Savior. So from beginning to end, in our gathering, we see the glory of God and we respond together in delighted devotion Every week, Christ himself serves up the riches of his food to us and we turn back to him in faith and delight and praise and obedience. So I'm saying, don't miss out on that. God is infinitely worthy of our collective worship and it is a delightful duty to see him and to believe on him together is what your soul needs. So don't miss it. And I'm saying engage all of this gathering. Engage all that's going on in this gathering with all of your might. Ask yourself this question. What, what does it look like for you when you're intensely delighted in something? Think of other contexts. When you're deeply engaged in a conversation with a friend you love that you haven't seen in a long time, what's your manner? When you're watching a sporting event for your your favorite team, and it's a very important game, what's your level of engagement? When your child is performing in a play or in a concert or in a match, how attentive are you? That's the kind of engagement, the kind of delighted intensity that we want to cultivate when we gather here together. Come ready to listen to the Word of God read as though it was God Himself telling you about Himself. Because it is. Come ready to sing your guts out to the glory of God. He is worthy of your praise and your brothers and sisters need your teaching and admonishing. Come ready to share your life with your brothers and sisters and to share in theirs, both in the share time and in conversations before and after. Be ready to pray along with the prayers and add your amen 
at the end. Come eager to receive the Word of God preached, not as though it were some rhetorical event to be critiqued or as though it were intended for someone else, but as the Word of Christ to you. Come expecting to see the glory of Christ's death in the bread and the cup and to receive them in faith. Come ready to see God in His Son and give Him the glory that is His due and is our delight. Beware, oh, beware, brothers and sisters, of arriving with the mindset of a spectator or a detached connoisseur, someone who says, well, I wonder what they'll be serving today. I wonder if any of the songs are my songs. I wonder which preacher it is. If it's good, I, I, I might even sing along. might take some notes. No, the accoutrements may change from week to week, but the menu here is always the same. The God of all glory revealed in the gospel of His Son, He is the object, and His people are responding with delighted devotion. That's what worship is. That's who our worship's for. May God give us the grace to grow in worshiping Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for revealing, uh, revealing Yourself to us. We would be blind and in the dark, and You would be totally justified. But thank You for sending Your Son. And now we ask that You take this Word that we've heard and You plant it deep within us, and that neither the distractions of our lives or the difficulties of our lives would result in this word being snatched away, but cause it to bear fruit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.